0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The Jews answered him, "Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed?" "I am not possessed by a demon," said Jesus, "but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, Now we know you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet fifty years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Graham, thank you very
1: much for reading for us, and good morning. It's very good to have you with us here on this Sunday morning. Do keep your Bibles open at that reading, John 8, and let's pray as we turn together to God's word. Father, we acknowledge that the matters before us this morning from that reading in John 8 are matters of great weight. They are matters of life and death. And so we would pray this morning that you'd help us to understand the truth of your word, to understand these matters of life and death. And so live as people who have great confidence of life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, It's not easy to predict the future. I grew up uh, watching at times that program Tomorrow's World where they tried to imagine what the future would be like and uh, they make all kinds of predictions about the future and um, they predicted at times that we'd be living on the moon and uh, flying around in personalised aircraft to to work each day. Um, Lots of their predictions haven't come true. It's not easy predicting the future. Now often it doesn't matter very much about those kinds of predictions when it comes to the future. You kind of take it or leave it and doesn't really change the world too much. But at other times, getting the future wrong matters a great deal. A few decades ago, most secular commentators were predicting that the world religions would cease That because of um, modern science and the modern way of thinking about the world, the world religions would just gradually phase out and we would be left in this sort of um, non-religious world. But it hasn't happened. And uh, a few decades on, religion in this world is alive and well. And of course, sadly, one symptom of their ongoing influence has been all the violence and bloodshed we've seen across our worlds in recent days Another prediction about the future made years ago was that racial tension was a thing of the past, that it would just die out and go away. And yet that's not happened either. Think of what's happened in this country after the EU referendum. There have been terrible examples of of terrible racial abuse um, from people of this country towards outsiders, um, people from other countries, posted on social media and YouTube, and it's terrible to see. Or think of uh, across the pond in the US such uh, terrific divides around race, riots and shooting and bloodshed. Race and religion. Two powerful forces at work in our world and they aren't going away. They are forces that mark some people as being in and others as being out. They, they include and exclude And in a world as diverse as ours, where so many different races and religions mix in this global village, well, so often there are terrible consequences. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who has watched the news recently and have felt overwhelmed and distressed about these massive fractures in our world because of race and religion. And I have wondered, I'm sure you've wondered, what hope is there When those kinds of forces are at work in our world. Our reading from John 8 is set within the context of racial and religious tension. There is uh, one group who think they are in. And they are trying to cast another one out. And I'm talking about Jesus and the Jews. Or the Jews and Jesus. Jesus. Look at what the Jews were saying just before our reading began in John 8. Look at verse 39, just glance at the page. And they say this, Abraham is our father. In other words, we really are true Jews. And then verse 41, right at the end of the verse, they say, we are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. We really do know God, the Jews say. Two remarkable statements, one about race, our father is Abraham, and one about religion, our father is God himself. And so having established their identity, look at how they then treat the other person in the conversation, Jesus. And this is where our reading begins, verse 48. The Jews answered him, Jesus, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Samaritan DNA was part Jew, but also part other nation, not truly Jewish. And so to call someone a Samaritan was to call him a racial outcast. They also called Jesus demon-possessed. That is someone with an unclean spirit controlled by the devil. This is religious exclusion. And so do you see what's at work in this dynamic? Race and religion. Some think they're in and they're trying to exclude others. And in this context, Jesus speaks some truly remarkable words. Words that completely changed the debate in his day, all those years ago. But words that go on changing every single debate that has ever happened about race and religion sense, including today. In essence, Jesus says this. The real question is not about your DNA or about the color of your skin or your family tree. The real question is not even about what laws you keep, what religious book you adhere to. No, the real question is, who do you think Jesus is? He is the great divide across our world. He is the one distinction that truly matters. And he is the one we must respond to. How can Jesus say this? That is a huge thing for anyone to say. Well, this morning I want to draw out three extraordinary claims that Jesus makes about himself, which shows us why this must be the case. Here's claim one. It's his offer, eternal life. The Jews call him a Samaritan and demon-possessed. Jesus responds, verse 49, he's not demon-possessed. In fact, he does the very opposite of what the devil does. Jesus honors God the Father. And if anyone in this debate is acting like a demon-possessed person, well, it's the Jews, for they dishonor Jesus, the very one honored by God the Father. But having got that cleared up, Jesus then moves on very quickly back to his great theme that has run throughout this whole section in John 8. And it's there in verse 51. And these words are extraordinary. I tell you the truth, says Jesus, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. There are lots of words in the world around us. There are the words of the advert promising us happiness and fulfillment if we buy the car, there are words of the cookbook promising us a better body and more energy if we follow the diet. There are words promising us greater productivity in our careers if we follow this business plan. There are words for just about anything we can think of, but there are no words about how to escape death. When we have come face to face with death, perhaps it's our own death in a moment of illness, or perhaps it's the death of a loved one, and we sat with them as they face eternity then we will know that in that moment, there are no words left. Death brings to an end every hope, every dream, every project. But Jesus says, if you keep my word, you will never see death. There are different kinds of death. There's physical death, where our earthly bodies fail and the Jews think that that's the kind of death in focus because of how they respond verse 52 the Jews exclaimed now we know that you are demon possessed Abraham died and so did the prophets yet you say that if anyone keeps your word he will never taste death are you greater than our father Abraham he died so did the prophets who do you think you are? They've misunderstood the offer. The kind of death that Jesus is talking about is, well, it's not physical death. It's actually something far worse because there is also a spiritual kind of death being cut off from God and under his judgment. And this spiritual death is far more serious than physical death because one day each of us will stand before God and have to give an account for our lives And those who are spiritually dead now, in that moment then, will find themselves cut off from God forever, for eternity. And so when Jesus says, you'll never see death, he's not talking about physical death, he's talking about something far more serious. And the offer here is far greater than just avoiding physical death. He is offering us spiritual life. That is life that goes beyond the grave. It is physical, it is real, it is tangible. And it's a life of eternity lived with God. That's the offer, eternal life. And do you see how big this claim is? In a context that's full of religious and racial tension, Jesus says eternal life does not come to us through our race, our DNA. It doesn't even come to us through our religious effort or law keeping. No, it comes through believing the words of Jesus. Jesus. And this rules out straight away the most common response that people make in this world to Jesus. So many people think that Jesus was simply a great moral teacher, someone to be respected. But listen to the words of C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. I quote, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God." But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And at least the Jews get this. If you've been with us over the summer in our little series, you'll know that back in John 6, the Jews tried to write Jesus off by claiming that he didn't have enough signs to prove his message, but he did have signs. Then in John 7 last week, they claim he didn't have enough witnesses to back up his testimony, but he does have enough witnesses. And so now in John 8, faced with such an outrageous claim about life and death, what could they say? They have nothing left. He's not a madman. He's far too articulate and reasoned for a madman. All they can say is, he is demon-possessed. That's the last option they have open to them. And so if you are new to Christian things and just getting your head around Jesus, can I say you're very welcome amongst us this morning. But please see one reaction we cannot have is to say that Jesus was just a good teacher. Because in verse 51, his exclusive offer of eternal life is just far too big, far too outrageous for a good teacher to say. And for those of us who are trusting in Jesus' offer, Well, it is a great encouragement because we do have eternal life simply by trusting in his message and in his death on the cross. We mustn't let anyone count us out because of our race, our our backgrounds, our law-keeping. No, it's by trusting in Jesus. There's his offer this morning, eternal life. Well, next, his next great claim, his glory from the Father. Well, the Jews are outraged by what he's saying and so at the end of verse 53, they say, who do you think you are to say such things? Jesus goes on to explain, verse 54, he replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Whenever the queen is seen out and about, uh, maybe on the, the balcony of Buckingham Palace or at some ceremony, uh, when the crowds see her appear, they, they cheer and clap and wave, and they give her glory. And that's fitting because she is royalty, she's the queen. And the crowds, well, they're just the ordinary people, Us. And that's the way glory works. It's right to glorify the one in the position of honor. And it would be wrong and bizarre if if when the queen appeared in the balcony, she were to to bow down and worship the crowds. That's just the wrong way around. Or imagine the queen uh, queuing up for hours outside someone's house just to get a glimpse of them. It's just, it's, it's the wrong way around for glory. But in verse 54, even God the Father. Glorifies Jesus. And if God the Father glorifies Jesus, then Jesus must be someone of incredible glory. Lots of people mock and scorn Jesus. They take his name in vain and use it as a swear word. Uh, People minimize him by calling him a a good teacher. They even call him demon-possessed. And at the same time, so often in the world around us, people are trying to seek their own glory not the glory of Jesus. I came across one example this week, the the, the Swedish footballer, um, Ibrahimovic, uh, earlier on in the summer when he was leaving his his latest club, um, heading off to Manchester United, he said this about his former club, I came like a king, I left like a legend. Now I wouldn't put it quite so brazenly, I think, but there is a part of each one of us that wants to be at the center, the hero. And we're not quite as good at football as uh, Ibrahimovic, and yet we're doing our own thing, trying to make ourselves the hero of our own story. You see, the world doesn't want someone else to be at the center and to get the glory. We want to be there. And I think, at least in part, that is why the Jews are so... Violent in their reaction against Jesus. They don't want him to be in the place of glory. They want it for themselves. But the opinion that really matters, God the Father, well, he thinks Jesus is glorious. And we need to see this morning what this means. Many people claim that there are lots of ways to God. It's like climbing a mountain. All the peoples want to get to the top where God is, It's just there are different ways up the mountain Different paths, different routes But we'll all get there in the end There's the Jewish route and the Muslim route And the Hindu route and the Buddhist route And eventually everyone will get to the top And we'll all meet God together Whoever that God is Have you heard that logic? It sounds so appealing Particularly today when there's so much religious tension It's just not true Look at the logic of verse 54. The Jews hate Jesus. But the Jews claim to know God the Father. Yet God the Father glorifies Jesus. The conclusion? The Jews don't know God the Father at all. My wife, Lorna, loves the sea. She grew up near it and she loves going for walks on the beach and she loves the views and the sights and the sounds of the sea. Which means that at home, if you come to visit, um, you'll see around on the walls pictures of the beach and the seaside and we have a few paintings on the wall of of seascapes Um, because Lorna loves the sea. Now, um, if you came up to me afterwards and said to me, uh, oh, Pete, does does your wife Lorna, does she like the sea? And if I said, no, she hates the sea. you you would start to wonder how well I know Lorna. Because part of knowing someone well is to know the things that we love and the things that we hate. And here in John 8, Jesus says, "My, my father loves the son. He glorifies the son. And when people come along and say, the father, he doesn't love the son you start to ask the question, do, you, do they know God the Father at all? And so Jesus uh, leaves us with the conclusion it's what he says, doesn't he? Verse 55, you do not know him, but I know him, says Jesus. You see, any claim To know God the Father stands or falls on our view of Jesus. It was true for the Jews back then, but uh, this is far bigger than any Jewish thing. This is a human thing. For any person of any religion at any time who looks at Jesus and mocks him or downplays him by calling him just a teacher or just a prophet, they, they don't know God at all because they do not glorify the one whom God the Father glorifies. I wonder if we've ever taken time to stop and really think and look into the glory of Jesus, to see the things he said and did. And most gloriously of all, Jesus came not using his power and status to push people around, but he came rather to serve others by dying on the cross in our place. That is the place of greatest glory. And in many ways, all of the Bible points us forward to the glory of Jesus. That's the point, I think, when he talks about Abraham looking forward to the day in verse 56. Even Abraham, all those years ago, 1,800 years ago, was looking forward to the day Jesus would come and the glory that would be revealed on that day. All of the Bible's about Jesus. Why not look into it? Why not start particularly with John's gospel and read through from front to end and see the glory of Jesus? For that is how we know God the Father For others of us here this morning, I wonder if we've lost sight of the glory of Jesus. You see, so much of the world around us mocks him. And when we live in that kind of climate of scorn, it it can impact our hearts and we can stop thinking less of Jesus. We can become embarrassed of Jesus and move away from him. We can be silent about him in a world so deeply divided over religion. But if Jesus really is this glorious, then what the world needs is for us to speak more not less about him. Well, there is a second claim that underpins his his great um, claim in this section: his glory from the Father, and finally, very briefly, his identity, God Himself. This whole encounter has been building up to this final great moment. It is the climax of the whole exchange. The Jews are outraged at Jesus and his claim to have seen Abraham, and then to. Then comes the punchline in verse 58. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. We know that what he says in verse 58 is of extreme importance because of what the Jews do next. They didn't try to stone him when he claimed to bring eternal life. They didn't even stone him when he claimed that his God the Father glorifies Jesus, but they do try to stone him now Verse 59, why? Because they know their scriptures, they know the Old Testament and they know that only God claims to be the I am. Back in Exodus, when Moses saw a bush burning and yet not burned up, he went over to investigate and when he investigated it, he encountered the living God and in that moment, God described himself to Moses as I am who I am. And 1,500 years later, this carpenter from Nazareth dares to stand there claiming God's name for himself, I am. It is the identity of Jesus as God himself that makes sense of everything else we've been seeing this morning. Only because Jesus is fully divine is he able to give us eternal life. For he is the one who is eternal himself. Only because Jesus is divine is it right for God the Father to glorify him? His identity, God himself. And that is why the Jews try to stone him, for they see in this moment blasphemy. And I suppose that is the only right response to Jesus at this point. Either we should try to kill him for such wicked claims, or we should bow down and worship him as God. As I finish, look at what happens right at the end. Faced with an angry crowd trying to kill him, Jesus, who is I am, who is the God who created all of humanity, he could have, I guess, with just a click of his finger, he could have destroyed all of those trying to stone him. But he doesn't. Verse 59, he hides and he slips away. Because Jesus has not come to start a war. He has not come to judge or exclude. The only blood he has come to shed was his own. He slipped away, not to avoid death, but rather because at just the right time, he knew when he had to die, which was on the cross. And his death was for a very particular reason. It was to die the death we deserve, dying for all of our sin placed on him, so that we could have eternal life. This is the message of Jesus. It's not a message about race or religion. It's a message about life and hope that comes through trusting in the death of Jesus. And as Christians, this is to be our message and our pattern. We are to be life bringers, not life enders. Yes, the words of Jesus are hard-hitting. Yes, they are exclusive. But yes, they are incredibly inclusive because here is an offer for anyone of any race and any religion to turn and come to Jesus and find in him eternal life. Look, it can be very hard to predict the future. As we look out across our world, as far as I can tell, I suspect there'll be more racial and religious tension I think we would do well to expect things to get worse, not better. We live in times of great uncertainty, but one thing we can be utterly certain about is that there is eternal life and it does come through holding to the words of Jesus. And so now what this broken and divided world needs is for people to speak up about the one who brings life. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge afresh that these are matters of great weight, matters of life and death. These are matters which have caused great division in the world around us, and yet we thank you that Christ has come not to start a war, but to bring life. We thank you that he came not to shed blood of others, but to allow his blood to be shed on the cross. We thank you that he used his glory not to lord it over people, but rather to serve people. And so, Father, please give us great boldness to go out and proclaim the person of Jesus, because we know that in him there is life. In Jesus' name, amen.